afternoon to all of you. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and we're delighted to see you all here this afternoon. This is the third time we've hosted this Women's Literary History Month Literary Festival. I'd like to say a special thanks to Joy Bramble of the Baltimore Times and also to Linda Duggins from Hatchet Book Group, who uh, is really the... um, the brains and the hard-working person who puts this festival together for us. And so I'd like, let's just give both of them a big round of applause. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Linda Duggins, um, and I am the Director of Multicultural Publicity at the Hachette Book Group. Uh, Much like Joy, I'm also a big-time reader and somewhat of a groupie, but I get to be a little closer to the authors than Joy. That's why Joy likes hanging out with me. She wants to be close to these fabulous writers. Um, We're asking the writers to come on up, and I'll begin to introduce them as they sit down. To my right is Elizabeth Nunez. She's an award-winning author of seven novels, including Prospero's Daughter, which is the New York Times Editor's Choice, and Bruised Hibiscus, which is an American Book Award winner. She divides her time between Amityville, New York, and Brooklyn. Right next to Elizabeth is Connie Mae Fowler. She's an essayist, screenwriter, and novelist. She's the author of five novels. And in 96, she published Before Women Had Wings, which became a paperback bestseller and was made into a successful Oprah Winfrey Presents movie. Connie founded the Women with Wings Foundation, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to to aiding women and children in need. Connie lives in Florida. Next to Connie is Tiffany Yannick, newly married. Congratulations, (laughs) Tiffany. She's from the hospital ground neighborhood of St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. She's an assistant professor of creative writing and Caribbean literature at Drew University. And she lives between Brooklyn and St. Thomas. Next to Tiffany is Dolan Perkins Valdez. Her fiction and essays have appeared in Story Quarterly, Robert Olin Butler Prize Stories 2009, and The Kenyon Review. Dolan Perkins Valdez teaches creative writing at the University of Puget Sound, And she splits her time between D.C. and Seattle, Washington. This is her debut novel. And last but not least, Irez Gomez is a respected public interest immigration lawyer and law school lecturer, an immigrant from Cartagena, Colombia. Cartagena, thank you, gracias. (laughs) Irez spent formative years in Miami, New York City, and throughout the Pacific Northwest. She and her family now make their home in the Boston area, and her novel is also a debut novel. All right, folks, get ready. Because these five women before you on this stage, they have written strong and tough and tender and bittersweet stories. And they are written exceptionally well. I I know I've read them all a few times. They're, They're fabulous. The honesty and courage and love and frailty within the pages really make you take notice. I mean, it it will these stories reach out and grab you. You care about the characters. You want to get involved sometimes, because some of the stories are so, ugh, you know, you wrote them. Otherness is something that we all can relate to on one level or another, whether it's the enslaver or the enslaved, the immigrant, legal or not, husband, wife, parent, a devoted wife, a creepy husband, or a loving husband. It, it doesn't really matter. The four novels that we're going to talk about today and the one novella and story, story collection How Clarissa Burden Learned to Fly by Connie Mae Fowler, Try to Remember by Irez Gomez, Anna in Between by Elizabeth Nunez, Wench by Dolan Perkins Valdez, 
and How to Escape from a Leper Colony by Tiffany Yannick. These are truly, truly powerful tales. And the biggest pleasure for me in reading them was that every author on the stage actually wrote their own novel. <laughs> I mean, those of us in the reading community, whether in publishing or not, we understand what that means. It's, uh, it's a testament to their craft, to their dedication, and the way that publishing goes these days, and we'll touch on that a little bit later on, not everybody is writing what you see in a book. So I want to give you guys a, a round of applause for doing just that. We are celebrating International Women's History Month, um, as we do most, most annually here at Enoch Pratt. And if it were not for Judy Cooper and her fabulously talented staff, we wouldn't have the event that we, we do every year. So I want to thank Judy. Uh, Joy Bramble as well. Ella Curry is here from the Black Pearl Magazine. Uh, we have folks who are seriously interested in the written word and our authors, and we really have to support our authors. Um, let's take it to the authors. In the stories, displacement, historical trauma, th there's a lot going on. Um, let us know what made you decide on the type of book that you wrote, the type of stories that you put together, and at what point did you know that what's between those pages was going to be that finished book. Take it away, Tiffany. Um, I was really excited to just be writing, and I have to say that getting something published for all of us in this time of, of Great Depression financially is really a wonderful accomplishment in and of itself. Publishing houses are, are not really um, publishing a lot these days. So for, I'm proud of all of you. It's really wonderful. And thank you guys for coming out. Thanks also to, to Linda and to, to Joy and to everyone who helped put this together. So why, for me, I was actually writing a novel and writing these stories as a way to kind of escape from the long narrative of writing a novel. So um, for me, these were like a break, a breather, a place to go and just do something fun and explore. And each story, I felt like I was learning something new. In one story, I write from a guy's point of view, a male point of view, and I was teaching myself or trying to teach myself how to do that well. So every story was kind of an exercise for me. And there were just breaks, relief from the long novel that I am still working on. And it turned out that the stories were getting published in nice places, winning nice awards. And a publisher came to me and asked me if I had a story collection. The truth is I didn't know if I had a story collection, but I said yes anyway. <laughs> because, you know, never reject yourself, right? Um, so I said yes, and she wanted to meet with me. And I, I brought some stories, and she decided to, to go ahead and take it on. So it was something, I mean, I guess the lesson for me was that I, I didn't know I was working on stories our collection, uh, it turns out. But I was working on all of them doing the same time in my life. I was in grad school, and so I guess over, over a three-year period, I was working on all the stories. And I was going through the same thing in my life, which was issues of, of love and loss and being away from home and um, figuring out who I was as, a, as an adult and as a woman. And I think although the stories weren't written consciously as a collection, because they all were written with you know, by the same person who was going through the same kind of emotional difficulties, they all had some of the same issues that they were covering. So it turned out that they were a collection, that they all had similar themes. Well, that, that truly is a testament to your writing because most publishers don't look at authors initially with a, a collection. They say, you give us the novels because we have to see, you know, if you can really write or not. But that's fabulous. It really is fabulous. Dolan? 
So the question is... The question is, <laughs> what point in your writing did you know what is between that book cover became your book? I mean, how, how did you figure that out as you were getting that story out of you, mm -hmm. onto paper, in computer, however you did it? Right. How did you know it was going to be Wench and what Wench became? Well, um, I actually outline, um, and I know some writers don't, but I had had a couple of um, novels that I'd worked on before that were never picked up that I'd, uh, I'd gotten three, three or four hundred pages in and realized it wasn't working. And it was, um, it was disheartening to have to go back and dismantle the whole thing. So for this novel, I actually outlined. It wasn't an extremely detailed outline, but um, it helped me to navigate and stay on track I didn't know what would happen at the very end of the book, but I knew that the book, which is Wench, mm -hmm. um, I knew that it would have four parts. I knew that in the second part I would go back ten years with my main character to show um, when she initially becomes uh, involved with her master. I knew the sort of general things that I was going to do. Um, and so for me, I knew from the very beginning... Um, I guess the arc of the book and what I was the story that I was trying to tell. I didn't know what the end would be, but um, you know, once I got to the end, it was very easy to write because my conception of it had been um, so formed at, at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And so that that was sort of my process. Okay, and Elizabeth, you're the veteran. You yes, you're the veteran. You have quite a few books under your belt. Um, for Anna in between, um, this is, you know, from what I know of your work, this is very different. Not so much the themes running through the book, but the actual, I mean, Anna is front and center. How did you know Anna in between was going to become what it did? Unlike Dolan, Dolan, yeah. I, 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 I fly without wings. <laughs> <laughs> I start writing a novel without you know, every day hoping that when I put my fingers on that computer, it's going to lead me somewhere. And it may take me about two hours to begin to lead me somewhere, but it never fails. It does, in fact, lead me somewhere. But, um, and generally, I, I, I write a novel for something that's bothering me, that I don't know, some, some ish, issue. Um, and in this world I create with the characters, they surprise me. I discover answers and invite you to the same. So let me tell you what the question was. Um, it was that um, my parents had had what seemed to me to be a very passionate, not just a love marriage, but a very passionate one. And it was over 60-something years of a marriage. <clears throat> and um, one day I went, to, to, went home and my mother said, that, no, I, I'm writing my novel now instead of the truth. <laughs> <laughs> the, the word of the imagination is so real that you forget. I'm trying to tell you the truth and I'm telling you the novel. <laughs> the truth was that my mother came here to New York for a wedding of, of one of my nieces or something, and she announced that she wanted to go to the doctor. Now, this was a very strange announcement for us because I have brothers who are physicians and they've been always wanting to have her go to the doctor and she's always found a reason not to. But here she said she would want to go. So I went with her and within one minute, 
of the doctor seeing her, just a, even less than a minute in seconds, he comes back and he says, you know your mother has breast cancer. And he looks at my mother and he says, and you know you've had this for a very long time. Uh, she had such a tumor, it was huge, uh, on her left breast and under her arm. And then my father just says to me, whispers behind me, you know, um, I see the, she sleeps in my nightshirt and I see the blood on my nightshirt. So the question for me that this novel opened up was why? Why had they allowed this to get so, it, it's not like they didn't, they, not like they weren't a close husband and wife, they slept on a double bed for 60-something years. Whenever my father traveled, my mother would leave us and go with him. Um, they loved each other very much. And not only that, he tells me he saw the blood. So it had ulcerated. The good news is my mother lived 15 years after that and did not die of that, and that's amazing. But um, So that's the question I needed to ha find out. How, how is that a good marriage? <laughs> How is that supposedly a good marriage? Although that's not, that's what opened up the novel. Mm -hmm. um, that's what, but, but once I got into that terrain to find out what their answers were to the question, I, it took me into a different place. So that's it. Connie? Well, I'm like you. I don't have outlines. I never know what's going to happen, and I'm just, you know, I love that phrase that you're flying without wings. That's exactly right. Um, and I, I think for, for me, I, this book is, is art imitating life and life imitating art, um, and, and a lot of different things came together to, to create the book. And I think it's, it's, it started when I, w I was doing some reading about Florida history, and... Um, I and I, I was really interested in, in the times that Spain that, that Florida was a Spanish colony and it was I guess twice in its life. And at what point what happened when that changed? And I came across this thing called the Florida Land Purchase. And in 1821 this piece of paper was signed that when Florida was under Spanish rule, it was a free land for women, for black people. Black people could own houses, they could sit on juries, women could own property. It, you know, it, it wasn't great, but it was a lot better than what was happening in the U.S. territories. But in 1821, they signed a piece of paper that said, in two years, the United States is going to own Florida, and all that's going to change. I was so haunted by that, and I thought... In 1821, the folks in Florida probably didn't even know that piece of paper was signed. I said, they're going to be sitting in property that they own, and one day somebody's going to walk up and just take it away from them. I mean, in some ways it was even more insidious than a lot of the other things that happened, that just a real estate deal. That's what happened in Florida was a real estate deal. And suddenly women have no rights, black people have no rights, and that's the history of my state. So that really haunted me. And um, I also was interested in, I had been through... Um, a really interesting marriage <laughs> and that had ended and I was trying to come to terms with that and I wanted to, to, to write about a woman who because of what's happening in her personal life is paralyzed in her artistic life but she hasn't figured out that connection 
And, and somehow all of that wrapped itself around this notion of when do we get honest and how do we find our freedom? And that we have to fight for it individually. We can't expect anybody to do it for us. And that's when I figured, I mean, and it was organic. It just sort of happened that all these characters came together. And Iris, I mean, as an immigration attorney, um, and I know you, you touch upon so many different topics for your young character, Gabby, and her mother and her father, and how did you, I mean, was it the things going on at work or just everyday life? Um, well, it was a combination. I, I had long, um, like uh, I guess others, had, a, had questions I wanted to write about, and one of the questions was, what does it mean to love your family? Does it mean to be loyal no matter what? Or um, how far do you have to go? And like, as in Elizabeth's novel, you know, where the husband is um, committed to and loyal to the idea of privacy um, that keeps him from revealing her illness. In in my novel, try to remember, um, Gabby, the heroine, has to um, show her loyalty to her family by helping the family hide the secret of the father's growing mental illness even from himself. And um, so I was, I, I was not sure exactly how I was going to write it. I just, like others, I started to, um, to write um, little pieces. I'd been a poet, so I was used to writing, you know, self-contained, short <laughs> items, and, um, and then working on them and editing them. And I guess the, the point where it all came together and it started to become a book was when I did the outlining and I found out that um, one of the things that unified many of these pieces was the role that papers, different kinds of papers, were playing in the lives of this family. Um, the green card that the father is in danger of losing, the papers that have to do with their um, court matters, um, and so, you know, as a poet does, I began to visualize all the different kinds of paper, and even though ultimately the book didn't take the form of a series of stories about the role that these documents had in their lives, um, it, it enabled me to see that there was also a connection to the work I was doing, and one of the, um, the things that has caused me the most pain <laughs> in my work with immigrants is the um, complete vulnerability that immigrants continue to have uh, with respect to the law even years after they've held their green cards and how, um, how frail really their status is in this country. And um, you know, so I, I, you know, I found a way to draw on some of my experiences um, with representing clients uh, to try to give some content to that problem. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, to your point, that, that whole status of fearing your status in the country you maybe have been born into or the country you live in, and that whole idea of being displaced, be it someone who is born into slavery or as an immigrant, I mean, how much has that informed what you've been writing? And when you talk to people about why you write what you write, who, who is the audience that you're trying to speak to? Anybody, um, everybody. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. You have this ideal audience in mind, but at least for me, I'm, I'm one of the rookies up here. You have this ideal audience in mind when you're writing the book, and then when you publish it, you find that it may not be the audience you thought it would be. So I really think of the audience in a very, very vague way as I, as I write the book. Um, when I first published the book, I thought for sure it would be a women's book um, because my, my book chronos, chronicles the lives of four women, and uh, obviously the cover image is, is, a, is a woman and in a dress. <laughs> um, but yet what I've heard is you know, there are a lot of men who are enjoying the book as well and finding different ways into the book. Um, I also thought that, you know, just based on what I hear about the market, that I would have primarily African-American readers. But I've uh, found that since the book has come out, um, uh, it's really um, being enjoyed by everyone. Um, I've been reviewed on as many um, white-authored blogs as black-authored blogs. So um, for me, audience, it's a very sort you have this sort of ideal audience in your mind, and the ideal audience for me would be someone who's interested in this historical period, someone who's willing to go forth on a journey that may not be um, a happy journey, you know, it's a painful journey, um, and who's open to um, discovering something new about themselves in this story. But when, once you put the book out there, I found that the audience... Um, can take all kinds of shapes and forms, and so then you know you sort of sit back and and wait to hear how how it's received and by whom it's received. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my answer to that question. So I have a, a different one. Um, my my heroine is named Gabriela, Gabby, and I named her after my daughter because I started writing this book um, when my daughter was, you know, in the age range of the heroine. And so I think, to be perfectly honest, when I first started writing it, I was writing it to her. I was writing it for her, and she was my first reader as well, so. Yenny? I grew up in the Virgin Islands, and we are a territory officially of the United States. So I'm an American by birth, but I'm also kind of a foreigner by birth at the same time. So I really identify with the immigrant experience. Um, but also came to America as an American, so really kind of strange. But growing up in the Virgin Islands, we didn't read Caribbean literature. You know, um, I, I didn't know Elizabeth Newton existed, even though I should have. I didn't know that there was a whole tradition of Caribbean literature. And um, I grew up in a household where there were a lot of books, actually, which was strange. My grandmother was a librarian, um, but and she knew of Derek Walcott, um, who was a you know major Caribbean poet. But there was really nobody else that we we had access to. So in in school, as when I started writing, I started writing for myself. I wanted to um, write the story that I wish I could have read in my classrooms, or I wish I could have found in the library. And I think how to escape from a leper colony is, I think, is doing the same kind of thing. I, I really would like to write for the. Um, the girl who was like me in high school or in college and wanted to find stories about the, the Caribbean and even more specifically about the Virgin Islands because people go to the Virgin Islands for the beaches and the, what, the margaritas or whatever, um, but people don't often think about going there for the culture, you know, that, the, that there is a vibrant culture there. So I wanted to, to put that out there for us, for, for people who, who live there and also for people who visit. But, I, but it's funny, I think the stories um, have taken me even further, similar to, to what Dolan was saying. When I first started writing the stories, 
I tend to write in a kind of lush, very lyrical way. I have a history as a poet also, as Iris does. And I went back home to my old neighborhood, Hospital Ground, which I put on my bio because it's like a rough, cool neighborhood. And I want people to know that, you know, I'm a rootsy girl. Um, and also so people know that, no, for real, that's where I'm from. Um, but when I went back home, while I was still in the process of writing the stories, the guys back home knew, they knew that I was writing. And they said, hey, you're, you're writing about us? And these are like the guys in the street who are selling marijuana for a living, you know. And I, and I, I wasn't writing about them. I was writing this kind of, um, for lack of a better word, higher kind of, you know, educated people. And I thought, well, why am I not writing about those guys? What's wrong with me that I don't think that they're worthy of literature? And this whole book project was about making the Virgin Islands worthy of literature, at least for myself. And I thought I need to write about them also. And so now my audience has gone there. Now I have these guys on the corner who don't have high school degrees who read the stories in the collection. So that's really amazing. Um, and I thought so. that first it would be college kids who read it in their classes because I'm a college professor now. Um, but it turns out it's kind of gone across and high schools are picking it up. Um, women's clubs are picking it up. And a lot of the stories are pretty racy. Um, some of them are pretty sexy. And uh, this church just picks it up, which I'm kind of horrified about. <laughs> uh, and they're reading it. I mean, there's a lot of spirituality in the book and it opens with an epigraph um, that's actually from a prayer to St. Raphael, who's the, the patron saint of travelers and lovers. So I hope I didn't trick these church people into <laughs> no, reading no, my book. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's you. You. I had a very, um, very personal and emotional audience when I started, which was, I guess, myself and versions of myself. And now it's kind of it's it's gone much further than that. Well, I uh, I grew up in a really fractured. My family was really fractured. I mean, the only grandparent I knew was my maternal grandmother, who was Native American. And um, I didn't know anybody else, and my dad died when I was, like, six. And this is a family with huge racial and cultural amnesia. I, you know, it's just like, let's get you to a psychotherapist. You're driving me crazy. <laughs> um, and then my... I, and I and so and I think and then my mom died when I was like 17 and so I had this real need to like know where I came from and the only thing that exists are stories and then they'll then they try to cover up the stories and so I just like spent enormous amounts of time on the internet trying to figure out who the hell I am <laughs> and so and so now I know that my paternal grandfather was biracial, African-American, and white, and then probably everybody else was a bunch of crazy white people. <laughs> and so I think that I write to my ancestors. I think in my head I'm always writing to them, trying to figure out who they are. Even when the stories are contemporary, they're still, like, haunting me. And, I, and, and everything really, I think, gets informed through that kind of broad scrim that, that, that I'm always trying to peek through and, and figure out what reality is. Um, and so, so when I'm writing, my, my readers are my ancestors. And then I think when people, I think I have a, a real broad readership. It always surprises me. You know, reading is so important to me. When, when I was a little kid, I mean, if I hadn't had the public library, I, I'd be dead or in jail by now. You know, I'm so happy to be here in this public library. Um, but 
it still just amazes me when people, when I meet readers. It's so exciting, you know, and, and, and it reminds me why I do what I do. You know, it's that, oh, there are readers out there and that books are so important to them and that they, they change lives. So I, I don't know the individual demographics or anything like that, but I'm grateful for each and every one of them. Who do I write for? I think my publisher would like to know who I write for. Um, because the marketing division of the publishing house will know who to target the book for. But I don't do that. Um, I write to know myself, I guess. Um, I write, um, I find that I'm, I, I don't want you all to put me on your couch here, but I find that um, I can't face my memories in real life. And when I'm writing, I'm not aware, I'm, thank God, I'm not aware that I'm recapturing the memories. But when I'm finished with the novel, I'm reading the novel like I didn't write it, you know? <laughs> because it's all there. Um, so I, 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 I think I write to, to make sense of, of my world. I, make, I write to make sense of the world to me and to put a kind of order in my life. I, I write, uh, and I write also as... Someone said I write for the books that I want to read, too, you know. Um. Share with the audience um, a pivotal, pivotal scene in your book. I mean, I've, I've read them all, and there were places I was crying, cursing, mad, laughing, like, ooh, you got some racy stuff, uh, Miss uh, Tiffany, you do. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> share with the audience some... Or a piece. You know what? Read a little bit, if you don't mind. I don't know why y'all keep putting me first. It's because I'm the baby. Because you're the baby. Yeah. Um, um, I'll read. Um, it, it's a collection of stories and one novella. And the, the stories are set all over the Caribbean and also in the States and in, in Africa and in London. I kind of went across the African and Caribbean diaspora. The stories are also written from just about every different racial background, makeup, and every different age group, and men and women speak in the stories. So a lot of um, the reviews I've been getting have talked a lot about, about the fact that I write a lot of first-person narratives from perspective of different characters. So I'm going to read from you from a story, a story called Kill the Rabbits. And Kill the, just for a little bit of setup, Kill the Rabbits is a song in the Virgin Islands that came up when I was in high school. And the song was kind of, it was a euphemism for killing Taurus, okay? Uh, which was, you know, obviously hugely problematic for a place, <laughs> um, especially a place where tourism is our major industry. It's the, in fact, it's the only industry. But there had been a, a call in the Virgin Islands by the government for us to tone down our carnival and to kind of behave, um, don't dance too, you know, lascivious in the, in the streets because the tourists are watching and you have to be careful. You don't want to scare the tourists away. And so this guy, Nicholas Friday, who was a lawyer actually and also a Calypsonian, a guy who wrote Calypsos, uh, wrote this song called Legal, but it was always known as Kill the Rabbits because of its, uh, its refrain, Kill the Rabbits. Kill the rabbits, okay. And there was a dance that went with it. And the whole idea, <laughs> I should get up into the dance, right? The whole idea was it was a song really about um, 
about dancing how you want to dance and being who you want to be. And if you want to shake up in the middle of the street, do it because that's our culture and you should have pride. And, and you're not performing for anybody, you're doing it for yourself, right? So don't worry about the audience out there. And it was like a huge anthem. It was banned from the radios. It was a whole drama. Um, and I, it's never left me. So I wrote this story with the Killer Rabbits as a title, but it's from three perspectives. One is from Cooper, who is a young guy who, at the beginning of the story, is in jail. We meet him in jail where he has the view of the ocean, which our jail really does. The people who are in jail have a nice view. And also the, the second person who speaks and who tells his story is Herman, who is a white guy who grew up actually in D.C., as in the story anyway, in the D.C. area, and has moved to the Virgin Islands to kind of figure out who he is in the world. And he's, he's traveled all over Hawaii, Alaska, and has landed um, in the Virgin Islands. And both Herman and um, Cooper are in love with a woman named Zika. And Zika is based on a character from the Caribbean, um, mostly from Brazil, who's um, a woman who was a slave, but because she was so seductive, managed to um, make her master fall in love with her. This is a myth, anyway. And take over the plantation and become, like, the woman in charge. Apparently, she was really good in bed, and that's what, um, what was able to trick her master. Um, so my character is named Zika. And I'll just read from Zika. And I'll read, like, about three minutes. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so this is, this is Zika. When my mother brought me home from the hospital... Two days after I was born, she placed me in a suitcase full of her clothes. I slept in that suitcase full of her clothes for the first year of my life. She wanted me to be something transient, something very much like clothes, something that should be easily packed and carried with you, perhaps even checked in at the airport so that during the plane ride, the luggage would be in someone else's care. It turned out that I would not be so easily transported. The clothes took my smell, be it a pissy diaper or freshly powdered behind. They were my playthings. The buttons shone and were pleasing to chew on. The zippers made a jagged sound that was funny to me. The clothes took my weight and my form. A t-shirt that I slept on top of no longer fit my mother when she tried to put it on. It was not surprising then that my mother left me behind with the clothes when she walked out with her big, empty suitcase. I never saw her again. My grandfather let me stay in his house because that is where my mother had left me among the clothes on the floor in the room that had been hers in his house. But he did not really raise me. He told me stories about my mother. He brought me the letters she wrote because she wrote every Christmas and for every one of my birthdays. But he was not a daddy. Many fathers are not daddies. There are papas and fathers and sirs, even those who go by their first name. Perhaps he was a papa. Mostly he was committed to other things. He made costumes for carnival. This is what he was, a maker of costumes, a maker of pretty things. He made costumes for the parades and for the pageants. Sometimes he made all the costumes for all 100 members of a troupe. Sometimes he made the one big mass costume, a thing that had to be carried on your back up the parade route, a thing that was taller and wider than the wearer and made the wearer something else. My grandfather was the best at what he did, and so he was always busy. Our walls were forever lined with strained sequins. The floors were always slippery with glitter. The dining table constantly being piled with cloth and sewing needles. My bedroom, which was my mother's bedroom before it was mine, was a changing room. 
Often a stranger who had been trying on a costume would leave her stockings or her panties behind, and I would wear them to see what it was like to be someone else. It was a kind of costume. Many of my uncles and aunts lived in the house for short periods. They were temporary parents. With them, I did well, though I came to expect constant newness. I came to expect it and not see it as abandonment, but as a new chance to remake myself. I treated all my relationships like this. I was not interested in keeping the same friends year to year. This meant switching schools because on this small island, the schools are also small, and in two years, I would have made friends with everyone who would have me. I switched schools often, and this was facilitated by an uncle or an aunt who wanted me to attend the school she or he had attended. They would hold my hand and march me to their old third grade teacher or their middle school schoolmaster or their old high school principal. A uniform would be made quickly and without flair. This was not carnival, so that my skirts never had the stylish box pleats or the paneling of the other girls. And by the time I graduated from high school, I had attended all the public schools and private schools that would have me. The reputation that followed me was that I had kissed every boy on the island. Or if I had not kissed every boy, then I'd kissed his friend. I never kept a boyfriend when I moved schools, even though some of the boys did not want to leave me be. They insisted that love should cross school walls, that we could meet at the movies or the beach and still be boyfriend and girlfriend that sounded like a trap to me. But I knew that I was not normal and these sorts of silly attachments were indeed normal. So out of pity, sometimes I might even have sex with a boy to get him to leave me alone. It was my way of saying, here, you have had me, now let me be. This left me feeling less guilty when I wouldn't return his calls. The general assumption was that I was a bit of a slut and it was true. I felt I was a better person for it. Thank you. I can't wait to read Tiffany's book. It just came out this week. <laughs> now I'm ready. I'm ready to read it. Yeah. I'm not going to read a part of it because, as, uh, as Elizabeth said, it's a little bit difficult. The, the, pivotal mind, the pivotal thing that comes to my mind, if I read it, might give away a little bit more than what I'd want to give away. But... Um, in my mind, and, it, and I didn't feel uh, it was a pivotal scene so much when I first wrote the book, but after I was done and I thought back to it, I thought this is the scene that really encapsulates everything that I'm trying to get at here. Um, my book is uh, it's set at a resort in 1850s Ohio, um, which was popular among slave owners and their slave concubines. And um, I was really interested in this because Ohio is a free state, and I, and I wanted to know why the women wouldn't run. And so when I first began to draft the novel, my question was, is it possible that oh, a slave could actually feel that she was in love with her master? And so the protagonist of my book, Lizzie, believes this. And um, she believes that she's in love with him. And um, you know, as the book continues, you see how complicated her relationship is with him. But three quarters of the way through the book, there's a scene um, where one of the other women who she meets at the resort who, is, who does not believe that about her master and who is much more rebellious says to her, is he God to you? And she misunderstands her. She thinks she asks her, is he good to you? And she says, yeah, I reckon he's good to me. And she says, no, I said, is he God to you? 
and the moment passes. And so when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking of it as sort of this big scene. It's a very, very brief moment in the context of the book overall. But when I think back to the book, I think, you know, that is sort of, that's the moment, I think, that encapsulates the question I'm really asking of this particular slave who believes that she's in love with her master. So... Well, I, I didn't pick out a um, one of the most intense scenes, um, and but I did pick out a scene that I thought was a little bit lighter, um, and yet gives you a little bit of a flavor for the world that um, Gabby, my heroine, is um, introduced to in Miami, Florida, in the late '60s, early '70s, when she's uh, goes to live there with her family. So uh, I'll just read this short scene, and um, all you need to know is that before this, her uh, father has started to behave very badly, he's lost all his jobs, and um, one of the worst ways he's behaving is um, around moral issues, and if he sees that she's watching TV and there's kissing on TV, he goes into a rage and becomes very scary, and so, um, so that's one thing that's going on. And um, so right before school starts, uh, her mother has taken her to a person who they think is a doctor, Dr. Sanabria, to get a note to excuse her from having to attend gym. <laughs> so I'm going to read you the, um, the gym class scene. I boarded my bus to Flagler Junior High, a pastel complex of one-story buildings that had been augmented with a cluster of aquamarine trailers to accommodate the growing number of Cuban refugees rescued by the Americans. No one had saved me, a Colombian immigrant, but I fit right in there among them with my homemade wardrobe and old-fashioned parents. Since I'd moved here so late in the school year, I didn't know many people and was eager to pal up with my new friend Lydia. Together we headed to gym. Lydia didn't have a doctor's note to excuse her from undressing among strangers, and soon I wished I didn't either. The teacher, whose face seemed to be engraved with a permanent scowl, frowned at Dr. Sanabria's permission slip. She tapped an amazingly white sneaker against the stool and announced, I'm taking this to the principal. Then she pushed a lock and gym suit at me. Go change. What could be wrong with my doctor's note, I worried as I turned to nervously follow the other girls. If only phys ed could be an elective like Spanish, I wished forlornly, imagining my father's apoplectic face when he found out the school made us undress. Even my mother had reacted badly when I brought home the gym suit payment request. Why aren't your own clothes allowed, she demanded, examining the notice suspiciously. The nuns never made you change your clothing. We're supposed to exercise on a field and you sweat a lot, I tried to explain patiently. They want us to shower so we won't smell. Shower, Mommy exclaimed. Yes, they have a room with showers, and then when you come out, the teacher hands you a clean towel. You're naked, she'd asked incredulous. That had prompted her to spring into action. She got on the phone with relatives until she found out about the mysterious Dr. Sanabria. Though she acted as if her own morals were at stake, I knew they were wrapped up with those of the Latin American dictator in charge of her feminine virtue. 
Now, as other girls began changing in the locker room, I tried to figure out how to undress as modestly as possible in that very public arena. The truth was, I wasn't looking forward to disrobing and parading around in the nude myself. Hesitantly, I unfolded my gym suit and slowly began putting it on under my jumper. Then I rapidly slipped the jumper off over my head while sliding the gym suit up to cover my bra at the same time. <laughs> Out of breath by then, I jerked my arms into the suit and quickly snapped it shut over my chest. When I darted anxious glances around the room, no one seemed to be watching. The other girls were too preoccupied with how bad their own suits looked on them to judge me. I studied myself in the nearest mirror. The gym suit was made out of a white canvas material you couldn't see through. The top half was okay, but the bottom resembled a diaper that bunched up over your rear. This totally accentuated the thighs, and mine suddenly felt even more naked than they ever had before. Alina, a friend of Lydia's who'd been assigned a locker next to mine, complained bitterly. At least you have long legs, she pointed out. Look at these fat drumsticks. <laughs> I shook my head in empathy as we headed outside. Since I hadn't brought in sneakers, I was forced to wear my flats, making my long, exposed legs stand out even more. How immoral I felt wearing that outfit. Soon, however, our activities made me forget about appearances and morality. First, we were ordered to jog around the field. It was toasty out, not a lick of dew left in the grass. I teamed up with Lydia and Alina as we seemed to be the slowest of the bunch. Other girls whizzed by, making fun of us, and Alina whistled back in defiance. By the time we reached the stopwatch, my feet ached from running in flats, and I was completely drenched in sweat. Alina gave me a high five for being the last one in with her. At least I was making friends. Miss Michaels glared. Ladies, she said coldly, we need to work toward an 11-minute mile. Then she shooed us over to the other side of the field where a plucky girl was supervising others on various exercise contraptions. The most intimidating of these was the horse, a wooden podium topped with a vinyl pad that we were expected to run toward and then leap over, splitting our legs apart to land harmlessly and gracefully on our feet. In Alina's group, shrieks of joy rang out when someone actually made it across safely. Miss Michaels ordered those who'd completed a successful jump to the tennis nets, then stood before the rest of us with her arms crossed. This is not a joke. I expect each of you to perform this jump. Do you understand me? Doubtful nods followed. Lydia strolled diffidently to the front and managed to get across with a slight push from the spotter. Miss Michaels wiped her forehead with a towel. By the time my turn came, I had a terrible case of jitters. Plus, the podium was like distant Pluto. How would I ever reach it? You don't have to start so far back, Miss Michaels yelled at me. But I didn't trust her. I backed up a few more steps, closed my eyes, willed the nervousness out of me, and ran as fast as humanly possible. At some point, I heard Miss Michaels yell, jump, and leapt at her command, succeeding in grabbing the vinyl covering before my shoulders inexplicably hit wood. I'd entirely forgotten to shoot out my legs and somersaulted over, landing on the damp grass beyond the podium. Flat on my back, I thought of my family, my mother, aunts, uncles, and especially my Jehovah-like father, hovering above my hospital bed while I lay comatose and awaiting final judgment in that awful skimpy white gym suit. <laughs> Love it. 
Well, I'm not going to read from the most, I think, the thing that defines the book because, as Dolan said, it sort of happens closer to the end of the book. But um, Clarissa Burden, who is, I suppose you could say, the main character of how Clarissa Burden learned to fly, is having a really bad day. And she, it's the summer solstice, and she realizes, she wakes up and she realizes that she spends about 80% of her waking hours and a good part of her dream time racked with spousal death scenarios. And she's like, oh my God, I hope I don't really want him dead, do I? And um, by the end of the book, she pretty much would rather die than stay with him. <laughs> but um, in the meantime, the past and present are sort of like tectonic plates in this book, and they keep rubbing up against one another. And um, Clarissa gets into this old truck that her husband won't take care of. That's the trash truck. And she decides, well, if he won't do it, I'll go empty it. And so she has this series of adventures. And they're all screaming, this is a story, this is a story. Why can't you tell a story? Because she has writer's block. And she still doesn't recognize that this is happening to her, that the stories are everywhere present around her. And the past is always impinging on the present, saying, tell my story, please tell my story. So um, I'm going to read from, it's pretty early in her journey that day. Um, and this place actually exists. It's called Poor Spot Cemetery. And with a name like that, you know I had to drive down that dirt road and find out what it was. And the way I describe it is pretty much what I discovered. Um, and if there aren't ghosts there, then ghosts don't exist. And um, I'm going to pick up right where she is. It's very marshy. It's, it, there's, there's quick mud. And she is walking around, and she has fallen into the quick mud. And there are all these women ghosts, women and children. And two of the little girls have just, she's drowning, and she's got roaches crawling all over and everything. And two of the little ghost children have pulled her out of the muck. Weak but grateful, Clarissa clung to the first fixed object she found. She did not realize it, but as she hugged the headstone of Florida Lee Bessemer, she was the happiest she'd been in years. A voice in her head whispered, I am so happy to be alive. Clarissa said, me too. As she sat there trying to regain her bearings in a forsaken cemetery, awestruck at being alive, covered in grave muck, having just been rescued by ghost children, having almost suffocated to death in a mud pit, Clinging to a moss-laden headstone, she stumbled through what had just tripped through her mind. Me too? Me too? What the hell am I talking about? Who am I talking to? Amid the dead, Clarissa tried to untangle the voices that crowded her brain, the reasonables and the hysterics, the ovarian shadow women and the superheroine, the wise ancients and the girl who could, for a few minutes, fall in love with Trash Man. She pressed her cheek against Florida Lee Bessemer's headstone and tried to understand who they were and if she needed psychotherapy. As the dusting of dead mosquitoes fell into her palm, the simplest and most honest of answers came to her. All the voices, each and every one, were part and parcel of who she was. They weren't independent beings. They weren't manifestations of a sick mind. They were different facets of a writer's being, real as the mud under her nails. And she needed to love them. Somehow, this was essential if she was ever going to conquer the frightening landscape composed of white space on her computer screen. With a mud-caked hand, she ran her fingers over the headstone's inscription. 
The ghost women who had been watching from a few feet away, their curiosity getting the best of them, circled closer. Having accepted their fates long ago, they watched Clarissa without anger or remorse, fully immersed in a need to know her story. What is she doing out here? asked a pretty cinnamon-skinned woman with long, straight hair. This is no place for a living woman. Her flower sack dress was ripped. Her cobalt amulet gleamed in the flickering sunlight. Overhead, a screech owl suddenly changed its trajectory when it set its yellow eye on the ghost women, swerving hard to the left and out of sight. Child must be lost, said a black woman whose hair was hidden in a blue cloth and whose arms still bore the bruises of the beating she had suffered at her death. Lost or crazy, said a young brown-haired white woman who cradled a silent baby. Florida Lee Bessemer, 1828-1845, Clarissa said, reading the stone, May Jesus accept her into his forgiving arms. She rose to her feet and, moving with light, tentative steps, made it to the next stone, which was smaller. She wiped off the grime. Josephine Bessemer, 1845-1845, infant daughter of Florida Lee, born in sin but loved by a patient God. Clarissa, urgency tugging at her bones, walked the line of headstones, reading quickly, making sure she stayed on solid ground. Glorious Louise Johnson, 1827 to 1844, cleanse your heart, so saith the Savior. Cornelia Glory Johnson, 1843 to 1845, may the child not know hell. Rosa Marie Valdez, 1840 to 1855. God's tears cannot undo what Satan hath wrought. Consuelo Luna Valdez, 1842 to 1855. Little sister, once Christ's dove, now Satan's breath. Baby Valdez, God save her soul. Jessamine Freedom, 1856. And it continues. What did this mean, and why did the inscriptions become more cryptic, ominous? There were, by her count, 22 bodies buried at poor spot, and also though some of the inscriptions were eroded into oblivion, as far as Clarissa could tell, everyone interred was a woman. She wound her way back through the headstones, trying to make sense of this place, these brief inscriptions that led only to questions. Dead mosquitoes rained down all around her. Maybe, she thought, standing in front of Consuelo Luna's headstone, poor Spot was a yellowjack cemetery. But why no males? Why had in death the females been segregated and buried in a place so hellish that no one, especially no one trying to stay healthy, would visit? The black woman with the blue headcloth, whose name Clarissa did not utter because her headstone had been swallowed by the mud nearly a century ago, said, What do you think would happen if she knew the truth? The three ghost women, including Melissa Jackson, in unison said, Dead? Clarissa looked beyond the ragtag line of graves that surrounded her, feeling certain that there were plots without headstones, that at some point bodies had been dumped and abandoned, that she was walking on the graves of women and their children who had been long forgotten. No one had tended these graves since the day these women were dumped. A sadness as thick as the sweltering air descended on her. These were her sisters, sisters who had been considered disposable, unclean, unworthy. 
Maybe it wasn't a yellow jack cemetery at all. Maybe it was a potter's field for women who spoke their minds, whose sexuality was considered too obvious, tempting, dangerous, evil. Maybe these women had, had been spawning bad seeds, so the men said. Maybe she had stumbled onto her own private Salem. Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard to be last, but yeah, <laughs> these are such fabulous readers. Um, I, as I said before, I write kind of a question that's bothering me um, or concern I have. And I always felt after independence of the, um, some of the colonies, especially the ones colonized by the British, that the people who took over, the black people who took over, were act acting in the same way as the white colonists towards their help. And so Anna, in this novel, is very critical of the way her mother treats the gardener and the way her mother treats her helper. And in this short scene that I'm going to read, um, what I can tell you the answer that Elizabeth Nunes found out, which was that we have to look at people through their lenses, not through ours, you know. We have to look at it from their culture. Okay. Um, her mother at this point has gone through, um, is gone through chemo, so she's lost her hair. Anna's father, <clears throat> and Singh is the gardener. Anna's father opened the gate for Singh when she wakes, opens the, has already opened the gate for Singh when she wakes up the next morning. From her bedroom, she hears her mother fussing with Singh in the garden. I don't care what you say, Singh. The plants need watering. The beds are dry. Madam, I tell you it go rain today. Singh's voice is syrupy. It is clear he intends to stand his ground. You're a hardhead, Singh. Anna peeps through the window. She cannot see her mother's face, only her back. Her mother is in her housecoat, a bright pink cotton shift edged with white piping. Her blue nightgown flutters beneath it. In her hand is the garden hose. Singh is facing her mother. Anna is struck once again by the color of his hair, how black it is, how thick, how it shines, how starkly it contrasts to the thin wisps and tufts on her mother's head, to the bald spot in the middle. Her mother hides her hair from her bridge friends, but not from Singh. Singh has been with her for 40 years. She does not need to hide her bald head from him. <coughs> Singh understands illness, the failure of the body, the inevitability of death. If you just wait an hour, madam, Singh pleads with her, you gonna see how it gonna pour. Anna looks up at the sky. To the west, dark clouds have gathered, but to the east, where the sun has just risen, the sky is a brilliant blue. You see the clouds over there? Singh points to the west. He's standing in front of the flower bed, his head cocked, his weight shifted to one side of his body. The expression on his face is of pure forbearance, but of affection too. His eyes twinkle and his lips slant upward. I'm turning on the water, Singh, her mother announces. Her hand is on the nozzle of the hose. If you don't move, you'll get wet. Singh remains standing where he is. Madam, I'm telling you it go rain. He shakes his head. His hair slicked back with coconut oil does not budge. I'm warning you, her mother marches to the faucet at the edge of the garden. I'm warning you, Singh. I ain't moving, madam. Singh's feet are planted firmly on the dry ground. 
I'm turning it on, sing. I ain't moving, madam. Anna thrusts her head further out of the window. She cannot believe her mother will make good on this threat. Have it your way, sing. Water fans out from the hose, long translucent sprays that catch the sun and sparkle with rainbow colors. Sing, true to his word, does not move. Water splashes on his t-shirt and his shorts and wets his bare arms and legs. So that's what you want, eh, Sing? You didn't take your shower this morning, is that it? <laughs> Sing's laughter rumbles up his throat. Her mother is laughing too, a girlish peal that rings across the garden and drifts through the window. It's me or the flower bed you want to wet this morning, madam? Sing hops from one foot to the other. Her mother continues to spray him with the hose. Okay, madam, okay, madam. Sing scampers across the grass toward the back of the house, his makeshift clogs slapping against his bare feet. Incredibly, the mother runs behind him, still wetting him down. Their laughter is that of children in the playground. It ripples through the air. An overwhelming wave of sadness washes Anna. She slumps down to the floor. How comfortably they seem with each other. How easily their quarrel dissolved into play. Long after she can no longer hear their voices, Anna wrestles with questions that this all-too-brief scene has triggered in her. Will she always be on the outside? Will they, the ones who stayed, the ones who did not emigrate, always be on the inside, even Singh and Lydia? She has made the effort, but her mother remains an enigma to her, a bundle of contradictions, her relationship with Singh, Lydia, and her husband too difficult for her to comprehend. For how can she comprehend this woman who is ever observant of her social status, ever insistent on demanding acknowledgement of her class superiority, and yet protects her helper from abuse, and yet gives money to the poor, and yet prance through the rainforest to help her husband build a shed so that he could catch birds with Lagley, and yet is now skipping through the grass, squealing joyfully after her gardener. As if this isn't enough, as if it isn't enough that her mother's laughter continues to ring in her ears, mocking her. Later in the day, Anna is confronted again with fresh evidence that there's much she does not know, much she does not understand, that in spite of 40 years, not all of them spent in her parents' house, she may have misjudged her mother. The rain Singh promised arrives after lunch. It falls out of the sky in bucketfuls, in intermittent torrents of water that explode on the concrete and carve out miniature craters in the dirt. It comes suddenly and forcefully, and then just as abruptly it ends. The sun blazes forth its rays stinging, radiating heat, but the air is heavy with moisture, and the sun is not strong enough to evaporate trails of water weighing down branches on the trees, clinging between shoots of grass, pooling in crevices. Anna is stretched out on an armchair in the veranda, the book she has been reading turned over on her lap where it has slid from her hands. Her body feels bloated, surely an illusion from the oppressive heat. She can barely breathe. She thinks she, her parents are in their room, sensibly taking a nap. She thinks of doing the same. She lifts herself up and makes her way to the sliding glass door at the entrance of the dining room. The television is on in the den. She hears voices, American voices, a soap opera. 
Perhaps her mother is not taking a nap. She approaches the den. It is Lydia who is there. She's sitting on the floor, her legs extended to one side, her body stretched out on the other, her head propped up in the palm of her hand, her arm anchored, on, anchored to the carpet. She's a figure in a painting, the woman lying supine, the mistress of the house. Anna clears her throat and Lydia spins around, pulls down her skirt and sits up. Miss Anna, is something you want? An offer of service. There's no guilt in her tone. Anna may have caught her by surprise, but it is the suddenness of her arrival that causes Lydia to change her position on the floor, not fear of rebuke. It's as the world turns, Lydia says, when Anna asks about the program she is watching. Madam and I just talk about it. Talk about it? She does look at it in her room, and I just see it in here. Anna finds this hard to believe. But I never saw you in here before, she protests. Well, I know you're visiting, and I think you must want to use the den so I don't come. But then I see you in the veranda, and it's hot in my room. They talk. Lydia watches the soaps in the den, and afterward they talk. What else do they do? What else do they talk about when she is not visiting? Her mother claims she has learned restraint. Restraint is not natural to her. That is the implication. But she is restrained with her daughter, unrestrained with Lydia. Where else do she and Lydia have their little chats? Is Lydia permitted not only to sprawl on the floor of the den, but also to sprawl on the floor of the sanctuary of her mother's bedroom? Her mother craps, cracks open her bedroom door. Her eyes are misty when she utters her soulful prayer. I pray every night that my child will come back to me. But she does not wait for her daughter's response. She leaves. She closes the door. Uh, we're going to open up to questions. Any questions? I'd like to know how becoming a published author has changed each one of your lives, if at all, or impacted your lives, if at all. I, I interviewed Dolan on Black Authors Network radio show last week, and I asked the same question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, this, this is my first novel, so um, I'm humbled before those who've written more books. But uh, my, my husband has this great dream that we're going to pay off the children's college loans. <laughs> but um, what, I, what I wanted to share was that I had published two books of poetry before, and um, what I realized in publishing them that, you know, you come to the end of a road, and th then there's another road ahead of you. And so... Um, you know, as far as what the lessons I take from it are, I feel gratitude to be sending my book children into the world, but um, I, I return to my world and go on to the next project. <laughs> well, I'm one of the rookies, as I said before, uh, Tiffany and I. Also, well, I guess you're not really a rookie, then. <laughs> um, this is our first book, um, both of us, and... Um, I think for me, the biggest thing has just been having readers. You know, it's been an amazing thing to have people actually read something. I finished my MFA in creative writing in 1998 and sold my first book in 2008. So for 10 years, I wrote with no one reading my work. So the biggest um, change for me is actually having readers. And my email is on my website, so people email me. I get emails 
all the time. And I, I get everything from, you know, people loving the book to people asking why I didn't like that to people finding a typo here or there. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and I welcome it all because, um, I mean, it's an amazing thing to have readers. So that, that's, been, that's been the most fabulous thing to be published for me. So far, the, um, both of you mentioned gratitude, which I bet is what we'll all probably say, because for me, it's, it's very similar. And um, Dolan and I met three years ago at a writer's conference, so it's kind of amazing that both our, our first books are coming out at the same time. Um, it's wonderful to, to be doing this together, actually. Uh, for me, some things haven't changed at all. I, um, I still have to, you know, cook dinner sometimes. <laughs> and, um, you know, some things haven't changed at all. I've, I'm much busier than I was before. But the feeling of, um, the feeling that Elizabeth was speaking about, the feeling of getting to, to know yourself or answer a question for yourself that you've had about the world or just interact with, with, um, with language, which I think uh, Iris as a poet could really speak to, too, is something that happened a long time ago. For all of us, these books were probably written at least a year ago, maybe uh, two years in some of our cases. I'm not sure. But it takes a while for a book to come out. So I think the most rewarding thing is, is writing it. And, and, and then maybe the rewarding thing as far as the world is having somebody purchase it. And that's just so exciting. Um, but I think for me, I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful and just, in, just so happy to be fulfilling this, this dream that is not only mine, but my mother also wanted to be a writer. And in some way, my mother and I, like this character that I, that I read, grew up in the same room. But my mother didn't raise me. My grandmother raised me. Um, in this story, it's the grandfather. But um, in some ways, I feel like I'm doing it for her also. And that feels very rewarding because she was never able to, to get anything published. Um, but I saw this book in the bookstore three days ago. And it came out three days ago. And I saw it in a bookstore in the window for the first time. And I just started crying. <laughs> I, and it was it was 10 p.m. The book was uh, officially launched the day after, and it was I was just walking through my neighborhood at 10 p.m. and I saw it in a bookstore, and I I lost control of myself. I just started crying, started pulling people from the street like that's my book. Ah! <laughs> um, so I think I'm just I'm just so grateful, and I I don't want to ever forget to be grateful. I mean, Connie and I were speaking earlier that you can if you. If you stay grateful, it can always feel new and amazing. And I don't want to ever get used to, to it. I don't want to ever get to the point where I'm like, oh, I'm a writer. Oh, well, another book. Big deal. I'm, I'm, I want to stay excited. And so far, it's just, it's just wonderful to, to see it out there. Um, it's like hearing your song on the radio. You know, it's just kind of it's, it's exciting. Uh, yeah, to, to, to what she was saying, I mean, I think that writing is difficult. It's a very difficult thing that we do. And, and so, so I can't ever imagine being used to it, you know, to, 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 once you, you're holding it in your hand or you see it, through the, it's just an amazing experience, you know. And, and uh, I, I, think, I think if you ever got used to it and it didn't matter, you're probably not, out, you know, very high in your, your games. You've lost your game. It's just over with. But um, for, for me, I think that because I grew up, always being told to hide and shut up. And finally I did. I, I, I developed this terrible stutter, and then I just became silent. And so the way I expressed myself was through writing, and, but I kept it all hidden away. And so when my first book came out, it was in 1992, and they told me that I had to go out and talk in public. <laughs> 
And literally, I mean, I know the PR department was like, oh, we have got a nightmare on our hands because I couldn't say anything. I was, and, and I had to figure out how to, because every, everything about my past had been, you know, for me to not be seen. And so I had to figure out a way to have a public persona that was still authentic. And, and that, that has been the biggest change for me, to, to figure that out. And I think how I did it was I finally got so tired of being terrified. <laughs> that takes a lot of psychic energy. So, so that's been the biggest difference for me. Well, I've always had two careers going side by side always. You know, I've, I've been a, a college professor forever, and I've been a writer forever. And um, so I, I guess I kind of insulate myself um, because, you know, you can be a writer, but there's a, something different. That, that there's, it's a separate thing to being published. And being published affects your next book. So if you're, if you're not, if you get published and you are not published successfully, meaning enough people have not marketed your book, you may not be picked up by that publisher again, or you may not get the same kind of treatment by that publisher. So it's a kind of anxiety thing, you know, you, you do write a book, but then here we all are. Um, part of why we are here talking about our books also has to do with getting the book out to the audience. Um, so for me, um, I concentrate on writing the book. And I say to myself, my, my, my job as a, a, a college professor pays my rent, covers my head, and pays my food, and whatever it is, educates my son, whatever. Um, if, I, if it does well, so all I really want to do, all I really want to have happen is to have the privilege of being able to write and having a publisher publish it. Um, and I know that the publisher has different objectives. <laughs> and I have to be aware of those objectives because those objectives do impinge on me because if I don't fulfill those objectives, I may be silenced. And actually, if I may do a little soapbox here, <laughs> um, that's the sad story. The sad story is that there are wonderful writers out there who just never get published. Elizabeth, did you hear, just yesterday I found out that John Edgar Wideman is self-publishing his next book coming out March 14th on lulu.com. Oh I mean, now, this is a, what, Penn Faulkner, uh, Rhodes Scholar. Pulitzer Prize, I think he won right. a Pulitzer. And so he said, publish or perish, but it's really sell or perish, and he said he's, he's tired sad. of the control. I, uh, so tired. to your point, yeah. I actually read with John Edgar Wideman um, in December. And if that's the book that he's self-publishing, it's one phenomenal book. Book of short stories? Oh, it is just, I mean, he had us, it, we, just all, we just kept having him read, read, read. But I don't know what the answer is, but publishers have a point of view that all the reader wants is a kind of soap opera novel. I've written on that level. And, they, and, and this is particularly difficult for writers of color. So, you know, I'm, I, I've, as you say, I've written seven novels. I'm into my eighth. Um, I'm not published by a small press on my seventh novel just for so. Um, it is that the, what, what, what happened when I first started publishing is that major publishers would take a single-digit profit. 
and they'll feel a sense of pride that they are publishing this major author and you would go out and you have a sense of, you know, literature or whatever it is, um, that your books are in fact having to do with passing on the values, passing on history, passing on tradition. That doesn't exist anymore. Publishers want a double digit. In order to provide a publisher with a double digit, you have to hit mass market. And I'm not writing that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that also what's changed to that point is they, writers now have to promote themselves. And one of the things that has allowed that is, you know, the internet and everything. But when I started, right, and when I started in 1992, I mean, the, the internet was, you know, relegated to the military. You know, my editor and I did not have email, you know. And so now, I mean, I mean I've, I've got to, I'm being told I need to get some YouTube videos. I don't know how to do that. And, you know, there's, and I spend a ridiculous amount of time with my, I, with my website, blogs, Facebook, Twitter. I don't even, I mean, you put something on Twitter, I don't know if anybody's paying attention, but I mean, there's just an immense amount of, of pressure on us today because of that need for numbers to self-promote, self-promote, self-promote. And some people do that better than others. I mean, I feel like it's full time, and I don't think I do it particularly well, but it's certainly become a real part of my career as a writer now. It's going to be interesting. Oh, it's, it's really great for, for me and Tiffany to sit here and listen to Elizabeth talk on her eighth book, and here we are, like, you know, the anxiety is, is very real. But I was just going to insert something into the conversation, and that's the e-reader. I really think that the e-reader is going to change publishing. I think it is changing it right now. I think it's happening at a sort of lightning speed, and we don't quite know where we're going to end up. But um, my husband gave me a Kindle. I didn't ask for one, but he gave me one for Christmas. And I, and I resisted it in every, in every way that I could. And then once I downloaded a book and read a book on it, I actually liked the darn thing. And many people who I know who are readers like I am, serious readers, um, love these e-readers. And in the same way that iTunes changed the music industry, I think these e-readers are going to have a significant impact on the control that the publishing industry has. Now, as an author, do I think that's a good thing? I don't know. I think maybe not, because I don't want my, my work pirated. But having said that, it would be nice to see those many authors out there who can't get published who are writing really fantastic work get out there because readers want to read good books. I hear it all the time. I visit book clubs all the time, and they want good books. Um, so um, I don't know. That's my two cents. Okay. <laughs> Next question. First, I want to say I think you guys are phenomenal. I have two questions, and I think the first one is for you, Dolan, and then the other one, the other question, you guys, everyone can, can kind of chime in. But my first question for you, Dolan, is how much time do you spend in research for your book? And then for everyone else, um, as someone who is attempting to write a book, I find I spend more time thinking, and then by the time I'm ready to write, I don't have time. <laughs> and I, I usually find time when I'm on a train or I'm on a plane and the ideas pour out of my brain, and I write then, and I wind up with all these little pieces of paper that i got to put together. How do you guys do that? 
Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't wait for my book, which is a historical novel. I didn't wait until the research was done to start writing because it, was, it took a long time to get things. Um, sometimes I couldn't travel to the archive, so I would have to pay somebody there to photocopy and fax me things. And then I had to wait for them to you know, get around to doing it. So I just started writing, and then as the research came and, and as I discovered things, I began to incorporate it. That's not the same for everybody. That was just my own impatience, not wanting to, to wait. For me, the process I have is one of necessity. I write on the train, I write on the subway, I have my computer with me a lot and, um, and put it there. I carry a notebook, so I don't have a lot of different scraps of paper, but I have one place where I put a lot of different things inside there and then transfer it to the computer eventually. Um, but because I have a history as a poet, sometimes if, even if I can't write a long thing, I'll write a poem or something, a short, a short, short story that's still a story, but it gets you, it keeps you writing and it keeps those muscles flexing and it's still publishable. So um, I just write whenever. I don't have a very disciplined process, but I write a lot. And I, I, but I think one thing that is really interesting about what, about your process is that you spend a lot of time thinking and that's, that's actually great because in your head you're doing all of this revision already so when you get to the page there's probably uh, while some writers they get to the page and then they're on the page for you know a decade you're gonna um if you're doing a lot of the the pre-work in your head then you're, you're you might be in a, a good position but i can also speak to the research the the leading story in the collection is actually called how to escape from a leper colony and it's set in the 1930s on a leper colony off the coast of Trinidad called Chacachacare. And of course, I had never lived in, um, in 1930s Chacachacare. And in fact, I had never been to Chacachacare. But I had been to Trinidad, and I knew a lot about the Trinidadian culture, and um, talked with my grandmother about what it was like to be alive in the 1930s. And that was the beginnings of my research. And then I had a friend who went there and took a lot of pictures and just brought them back for me just as a gift. Um, and so I looked at these pictures, and that, that was really my research. And then just doing tons and tons of reading online about leprosy and what it does to people's bodies and, and what it was socially like. So the research was pretty um, extensive, but unlike Dolan's process, I actually waited until after I had done a lot of the research to start writing. Um, I think because a lot of it was in my head, and I just needed to be in my head, and I was moving around a lot. And then once it was... Once I felt I had enough, I just banged it out, and I wrote the story fast, like in a week, and then sent it out to uh, the Boston Review Prize and won the prize. So I had done all this research in my head and, and had, had sort of organized this whole story in my head first. But I think probably the research was a year worth of research before I even wrote anything down. I want to come after you because the strange thing happened that Tiffany and I met um, at a... What was it? Some kind of... It was in Brooklyn, in, in Flatbush, Flatbush Library. Yes. And Tiffany came to me because she said she was writing this story about Shaka Shikari. And I said, Tiffany, I've just written a whole novel about Shaka Shikari. <laughs> and we didn't know. But in my case, I actually went back and back and back and back because I'm originally from Trinidad um, to Shaka Shikari. Um, and so I had set my whole, my entire novel on Shaka Shikari, and she had, she had, and that's what connected us um, on that. Um, she also has, I was, a, we traveled on the train together to come here, and I was fascinated when she flipped open her, her laptop and started typing. Now, I didn't want to ask her what she was doing, but eventually I did. I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my novel, and that was just 
mind-blowing for me because I have to have total silence. No radio, no music, nobody around. I have to give myself the illusion that nobody's there and I have streams of time to do whatever I want to do. That's it. So she fascinated me. <laughs> and, but you did say to me, Tiffany, that it took you a while to learn that skill. That's what you, so I thought, boy, it's never too late to learn. I'm going to learn. Yeah, I do my worst writing on airplanes, so I kind of stop. But your story reminds me of, of how Edward P. Jones wrote The Known World, which I consider one of the great masterpieces of our time. And he told me that he wa- he, he'd read a little article, and it was about that there had actually been, certainly not very many, but there had actually been African-American slave owners, and he couldn't get rid of that idea. It haunted him. And so he just, I mean, he was working for this company called Tax Notes. He, He did the driest work imaginable. He wrote articles about tax law. You know, you can't get any more non-creative. But, you know, when he wasn't writing about tax law, he was walking around developing the story in his head. And he walked around with it in his head for years. I, I can't remember the... It was at least 10 years. And, and so then... And he had never taken a vacation. And so he's, his company says, you've got to take a vacation. And they had given him a really just crappy... Uh, computer that he worked on. So he, he's going to take his 30 days vacation. And he gets up the next morning ready to start. And he's been walking around with this thing in his head for 10 days, I mean, for 10 years. And before he can start, he gets a phone call and he's been fired. They've laid off a whole bunch of people and he's one of them, but they're going to give him 30 days pay. And he said, Well, I've got 30 days. I better get ready. I better get busy. And he wrote that novel in 30 days, but he'd walked around with it in his head for 10 years. So when you said that you walk around with it in your head, I thought, well, dude, get 30 days. <laughs> get 30 days and you can do it. Next question. Hello. First of all, congratulations to all of you. Uh, I don't know if anyone, if Dolan's answered this question earlier because I came a little late. When I first uh, grabbed your book or was handed to me, I said, uh, Oh, my goodness, do I want to read another slavery book? And then I read it, and I like, oh, my goodness. So I, was under, I wanted to know what inspired you to write about these particular women or this particular segment of slavery that not many people have read about. It's interesting. You know, I have heard that before, and I didn't know that there was that much fatigue out there about <laughs> slavery stories, and I hear it quite often. And then I hear people say, you know, once they read the book, as you're saying, that they really like the book. Um, I I read this biography of W.E.B. Du Bois um, called Biography of a Race and in the book when he gets to the part where Du Bois taught at Wilberforce University he's talking about the origins of the university he says that it must have been the most unusual resort hotel in America because it was popular among slave owners and their enslaved mistresses and I thought what what is he talking about and then he moves on he doesn't say anything and then um, I began to Um, do more research and find a little bit more about it. Women didn't leave behind a record, of course, because these were slave women. And so I was fascinated by the fact that they were taken to this free state, and I wanted to know why didn't they run. That was the question that really um, persisted with me. And then I began to think that since I couldn't find anything in the archives from the perspective of the women, I would imagine myself into these women, what it would have been like 
to be a woman up from the south in a free state at this resort on vacation with your master. And so that was really um, what pushed the book forward. And my early draft, I, I workshopped a chapter of it at Breadloaf where I met Tiffany that summer with my workshop leader, Elena Maria Vermontes. And after the workshop, she said, tell me about the book. And I said, well, you know, my protagonist is in love with her master. And she says, I think, Dolan, it's got to be more complicated than pure love. I think it's got to be more complicated. And that was the real turning point for me. I went back to the draft and began then to really deepen my understanding of this slave who, although she does believe she's in love with her master, it's a very complicated psychological dynamic between them. And so that was my sort of thing I was trying to explore. I have a second question for Tiffany. <laughs> I really loved your stories. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to know, did you ever consider or did you ever think that, oh my goodness, I don't want to make any of these characters seem too tragic? Um, my grandmother says that I'm, I'm a tragic writer, so <laughs> actually her word is morbid. <laughs> um, no, I just want to write what I think is the truth for the character. And for me, uh, writing fiction comes out of character first. I don't think about plot, I don't think about setting first, I think about this human being on the page that I'm, I'm creating like a little goddess in my head. And I just want to write what's true for the character. And for whatever reason, it seemed to me like, um, although I think I'm actually a pretty happy person, that life is tough in real, you know, the reality is that life is, I think, really, really hard. And if we're happy people, it's because of our disposition, not necessarily because life is so good. So I, I just felt like, for at least in writing these stories, that was what was honest to me, and that was what I felt my characters you know, had, to, had to go through. So now you've given away that some of the, some of the stories are, are tough. <laughs> um, but, but thank you for reading. This is to actually to Tiffany. I'm so happy that you're writing stories for um, little girls like you growing up because, as I said before, I grew up in a small place called Montserrat. It was so small that we would actually get atlases and try to find it on a map. Usually it was just a little dot. We were colonial, so we grew up on Shakespeare, Somerset Mom, you know, um, Jane Austen, and... I remember the joy that I felt when somebody gave me a book by Naipaul, Miguel Street. Wow. And I recognized people that I knew. I mean, all these characters were living in, in, in Montserrat, and it was just fascinating. And then I began to start looking for other stories, but they, they were not around, because even in school, right. we were taught English history, European history. We were not taught anything Caribbean. So please continue to do that so little girls can know that, you know, the people out there are writing more stories like them. Thank you for your comment. Thank you. I, I, one thing I might say to that is that uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback that the stories, um, th there are a lot of different voices. There are a, a lot of first-person narratives in the stories. And I think, for me, it really was about getting people who I know, versions of them, talking and getting their voice out there. I wanted people like you and I to be able to look and see, oh, look me there, look me there, or look my auntie there. That was really exciting to me. Just like when... I mean, even now, although I've been living in Brooklyn for th almost three years, when I see an advertisement to the Virgin Islands in the subway, I get excited as if it's me or something. But it's not me. You know? But, you know, I feel excited about it. And I, and I wanted to create that kind of excitement, too, for, for readers. So. 
Hi, everyone. Um, first of all, congrats to all of you ladies. I just, it's just wonderful to see all of you. Um, I want to say hi to Dolan. I'm Sherry Woods from the Reginald Flows Museum. And uh, hopefully we can bring you there. Um, I wanted to talk about my background is in PR and marketing, and I've been a publicist for new emerging writers. And now I'm an emerging writer, and I'm a poet. And I'm interested in how you feel about being packaged, because I grew up reading and I want to say hi to the Trinis, too, because I'm Trini. But um, I grew up reading and so never really knowing what writers looked like. And it wasn't important. It was about the book and the words. And I'm an avid reader. And being in the field now, in the last few years, it's almost now as much about the, how the writer looks, how they're packaged, how they speak. And I just wonder how that feels, particularly for women in... Um, in your writing, and then you have to step out. I think you spoke to that earlier. How you have to step out and then be this packaged person, and and creating this image. Because I'm having this um, problem myself, even putting my face out there. And I write poetry, and I've had to. And now I'm working on my second poetry CD. I do spoken songs, and you know I'm getting told that you need to be sexier. You need to dress a certain way. And I'm just like, it's so much more about the words. So I just wonder how you as writers and women um, are dealing with that. I mean, are you getting that pressure at all? Um, are you dealing with those thoughts at all in your work? You know, because once the product is there, then there's the packaging and there's the presentation. Just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, I hope we all touch on this in our different experiences. Because the mic is in front of me, I'll start. Um, I have had some difficulties and, and troubles with that. You're in an interesting position because you are a publicist and you're an artist. And, I mean, one piece of advice I would give to you, which you probably know this already, is to just keep them as separate as possible and have them in two different parts of your brain because you don't want uh, this marketing thing to affect the quality of your work, which obviously it can. Um, but I... Even in getting, I'm working on a novel, and I had a draft about a year ago that I sent out, and um, or that my agent sent out for me, and we got responses like, we already have our black book for the year. <laughs> yeah? Okay. Um, we already have our Caribbean book for the year. Um, and that was incredibly disheartening. People who, who were praising the writing, editors who really loved the writing, but, um, but with that, editors who even said to me, we're going to take this. You're the new 20 more saying blah, blah. And then they would take it to their marketing house, and the marketing people in the publishing house would say, you know, um, we don't know if anybody's going to want to read about, you know, this very literary stuff about the Caribbean. I even had someone suggest, why don't you set it in India because India's hot now. <laughs> You know, um, so I, but this whole time I'm, I just thought, well, I'm just going to write and I'm just going to try and, and do it as best as I can. And hopefully none of us are going to get rich off of this. Like it's, unless you are writing um, stuff that's mass market, you, if you're writing literary stuff, you're not going to get rich. So I think remembering that that's not going to happen and that the work is what's the most important thing and just letting all the rest of that nonsense kind of go. Um, I mean, really letting it just go out the window. I am actually horrendous at this marketing thing. I barely check my email. I don't even know what Twitter is. I, like, I, I don't, you know, I have a student who does my website, cause, and I don't even know how to get to it. I'm a disaster. So I'm not the best person to talk about marketing. I like this. I like talking to people and meeting people. Um, and I hope that if I do that enough, it will just get into the right hands. For me, it's not 
so important that the book sells a million copies, and it won't. It's more important that it gets into the hands of people who want to read it, and I just hope that kind of traveling will allow that to happen. I'm not worried if some dude who ain't gonna like the book anyhow gets a hold of it because he saw it on the cover of, of Life or something. That doesn't matter to me. So I just want to read to people who want it. And don't stress, eh? Don't stress. <laughs> but you do have to care, because if you don't care, you won't have the numbers. And if you don't have the numbers, you won't get published again. It's, um, you get those nice letters. So, so no, no, yeah, what I'm trying to say is that we all have to be responsible in this thing. I mean, we just all have to be responsible. What I'm trying to say is just think about how books, every movement in this world has been affected by a book. Everyone. You could start with the Bible. You could start with Karl Marx. You can start with Sigmund Freud. You can go to Charles Darwin. You can come to the civil rights movement and know that these books by Baldwin, Richard Wright, um, Charles Chestnut, Zora Neale Hurston, they were the trigger. They were the books. Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X. These, it was books. Not people jumping around and screaming. It's people reading these books, seeing themselves, getting a sense of what is possible for them and for the values that change the society. Now, we are in a very dangerous point. I think we are in a very, very dangerous point where books are seen as a way for profit. And that's it. And so writers kind of have to insulate themselves and say, okay, I'm not going to think about that. But it just is a very sad thing because I want you to think about the, not about the people on this, um, on, on sitting here, but I want you to think about who are our Zora Neale Houston. Toni Morrison's written a long time ago, so you can't count her. Alice Walker hasn't given you a new book in a very long time. So who are those people, inspiring people? I mean, I, I, I was walking down the street in Bed-Stuy and I saw these girls just chatting and they had a book and they were talking about it. And I said, wow, they have a book. It's called Thug Marriage. <laughs> <laughs> do tell me, do tell me what is that going to advance except to tell them how to behave to either get in or get out of a thug marriage. Well, um, wait, as, as the director of multicultural publicity, I'm going to wear my other hat for one second. I'm the moderator, but as that, in that position, and as a black woman, and as someone who I consider myself um, an anomaly in the publishing industry in terms of how I do what I do and the work that I do, I am a publicist for justice, I can say that, and I'm very serious about advancing good writing and for writers of color. But that concept of the writer, the author, you must, you must, you must stay present. You have to keep in your head how to perpetuate the sales. You have to because y'all will all disappear. Mm -hmm. And no matter how hard I work, because I work, let me tell you, <laughs> you have to consider who's going to read this book. How are we, you know, your publicists, your team, going to get it out into that marketplace? Because, yeah, Elizabeth's absolutely correct. They just, next. <laughs> oh, how many copies? 4,000? I mean, really, it's real. It's true. 
So yes, right, yes, stay true to what you're doing, but also keep in mind that we have to inform our culture. We, as people of color and others who care, you don't want to disappear, and you could, it's true. So don't kick that to the curb. Don't worry so much about the sexy thing that you were talking about later for them people, but really and truly consider keeping yourself viable and keeping yourself in the ranks of the published author. I mean, you guys write. I've said this in the beginning, I know you chuckle, but I'm dead serious. There are lots of folks who are authors who are not writers, and I'm not being an elitist at all. I'm just saying, we, I see books every single day. I see manuscripts, I see galleys. The editor, sometimes, God bless the editor, can actually create a very good body of work because the person whose name is on the cover not necessarily wrote that book. So th there's a lot of stuff going on. Th this, it's a craft. You have to hone yeah. your craft, yeah. and you have to be serious about what you're doing, but you also have to figure out a way to stay in the marketplace. Yeah, okay, and that's you know, I, I love what she said, because I actually noticed you when you walked in. You have a presence, and when you said that people said, oh, well, you know, I mean, well, sometimes it's about who you surround yourself with. I mean, you know, you, you do. And, and <laughs> but, but, I mean, you know, what I was saying earlier about having to figure out who I was comfortable with being public, and that is a real me. That does very much a real me. And, and then given that, then I have had to learn how to, I created my own website because I couldn't get anybody reliable to do it. So, you know, I just figured it out. And, and I'm just, you know, I don't, I mean, I have seven books. I don't know if I'm going to have an eighth. I never thought in all my days after seven that I'd be as scared as I am about not having an eighth. Um, because I was trying to do something different that my artist self wants to do, and they don't want me to do that. And so I'm having this internal struggle now as an artist. But, you know, I've had a great ride, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to, you know, keep trying as hard as I can to, to stay in the game. But, but you've got to stay true to your artist vision, you know, and then work the other side. Okay, last question. Okay. Well, actually, Linda, I'm going to hog the mic. I have two questions. <laughs> but they piggyback on what other people have uh, um, ask the authors. And the first question is, you, I guess, collectively have talked about, you know, you came across an acquisitions editor who said we had our black book or we had our Caribbean book. Um, and I am also a diaspora person. My folks are from the Bahamas. So you've talked about the myopia in-house. In what has been the reception to you from, like, once you've gotten past that, people who've read your work? You mean within the community? I'm yes, non, non, yes, people you who... You mean non-Caribbean or not? Yes, non-Caribbean individuals who've gotten a hold of your book. Do they feel the same way as the, the editors who have said, you know, this is an alien um, experience that people won't vibe with? Well, it's funny because the, the, this is the turn back to the marketing question. The mm -hmm. book, How to Escape from a Leper Colony, is marketed as a post-colonial novel. Oh, okay. Of course, the Virgin Islands is actually not post-colonial. We're still a colony. Uh, so it's kind of strange. But, um, but it's still connected to the post-colonial experience because that's, I think because that seems kind of exotic and, ooh, the other, ooh, Caribbean, mm. ooh, la, I don't know, whatever. Um, margaritas, I don't know, wrong country, but right, the same, people, um, people have the same ideas about the island. So I think that's how it's marketed. But when I think about the, the book, I don't think about it that way. And so when I have the chance to talk to people, although I, I am interested in post-colonial literature and I think it's 
I think I am speaking to post-colonial writers. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a collection actually about love and loss and the yearning for that. And also really deep the yearning for a, a higher spiritual self. And I think those, the people who also want to read that have read the book too. And often those people are not the same people who are going to it for the post-colonial kind of kind of thing. And so it has actually gotten legs in communities that um, the that the, even the publisher, marketing person, didn't expect for it to get legs in, like, like churches and mm. stuff like that. So, um, so, you know, sometimes you just don't know where it's, where it's going to go, but it's been, it's been well-received inside the Caribbean and black community and outside the community, which is why, although I do think we have to be savvy, and I think I'm actually probably the, maybe the least savvy because I can barely check my email on time uh, or like ever. But uh, I do think it's important to, to do the work because if the writing itself is good or the, the spoken word is, is, is itself good, then even people who might not identify with your themes will identify with the quality of the work, you hope. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, has, it, ha it turns out that the, the publishing people, the marketing people were wrong. It's not true that people who are not Caribbean won't read the book. P people who are, who are of all different places will read the book. Um, and I mean, even here, look at this diverse audience we have here. Y'all are all here. And hopefully, you know, all of us will get a sale from you. <laughs> Which means you have to buy five books. No, just. <laughs> but you know, I think uh, <laughs> it's cheaper than a pair of sneakers, says Elizabeth. But it turns out that I think sometimes the marketing people are wrong. And that they have an idea about marketing that maybe is based on a past idea. That's mm -hmm. why you, the author, you have to stay steadfast. That's yes, right. You're and right. You, you do. Yeah. Trust me. In the publishing house, mm -hmm. I know. I talk to the marketing people. I talk to the editors. And when they say, oh, this is, what, this is the target audience, I go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I go do my thing. Because yeah. I know better. Yeah. I know better. But not everybody mm -hmm. is looking at it like yeah. that. So, yes, uh, you and uh, Connie May had talked about what you have to do to advance uh, stuff that you do extra of the writing. Uh, I want to know if some of the other members on the panel can talk about how much time they spend with the marketing aspect of the work as opposed to how much time they spend on the writing. And is it a 50-50? Is it a 40? I'm bad at math. 60? <laughs> Thank you. 70? 30? Okay. Well, I can just say my book came out January 5th, and I have written very little since then. I have been promoting and touring mm -hmm. and tweeting and Facebooking, and um, people keep asking me, what are you working on for your next project? And I have nothing. People told me before my book came out, you know, this is the honeymoon period before the book comes out. Make sure you get started on the second book. I'm telling you, everyone told me this, and I didn't listen. I was too busy, you know, partying mm -hmm. and celebrating. And then the book came out, and I realized just how consuming the marketing part can be. I mean, I'm sitting here right now exhausted because I've been traveling all week, and then I travel again next week. But I know that um, it's not going to be forever, you know. And so I just sort of sacrifice right now to market mm -hmm. the book. Um, but I've heard other people say that they stayed on the road for a year wow. after their book came out. Um, and, you know, the other more experienced authors can speak to this. It's very difficult for me as, as Connie says, she doesn't write well on airplanes, neither do I. It's very difficult for me to write while I'm moving mm -hmm. and while I'm thinking about something as mundane as the numbers, you know. But, 
you know, try to be grateful that I can even, you know, there are a lot of people out there who don't get reviewed by anyone. That's right. Plus, you've and gotten a lot of bang for your buck. You've been in People, you've been in O. You absolutely. Know, I've covered you in Examiner. Every, I, so. I tell when I go to university, I say, if the student newspaper reviews my book, I'm happy. Okay. Because there are people out there who don't get reviewed by anyone. They don't get any tour dates. They don't get anything, so it's a blessing to even have somewhere to be here today, to be to, to be invited somewhere, and so um, that keeps me going. But um, I'm just going to add a small thing. I I haven't started yet because or fully started because my book doesn't come out till May. But I just but wanted to now. <laughs> right exactly. I, I'm told three to four months. Exactly Is that my Linda? strategy. Got to heat them up. Uh, but the uh, I wanted to say something about the internet, which in some ways, um, as foreign as technology has been for me, um, is is an equalizer in a sense, and um, also a way to reach uh, you know the younger generation that is so much more technology uh, oriented, and does read books and blog about books on the internet. And so, uh, but for me, that part of it, you know, just setting up a self-help website, it took me like three weekends, full weekend, Saturday and Sunday, just reading the directions, you know. And then for everything, you have to have a profile and a password and, you know, just so, so I, I think that navigating the Internet, it, it may be a generational thing, maybe these lovely younger women are much more capable than uh, than me, but uh, but I, I do think that that's that's a place where you know once you can effectively navigate the technology, that you could probably do very effective promotional work and in, in an efficient manner. Well, ladies, thank you very very much. Thank you. Fabulous.